Good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. We're going to be spending a little more time this week in the Old Testament looking at the prophets. Last week, you remember, I uh, spoke from the prophet Joel as we kind of get just an overview of what the book of Joel has to say, what his message was, who he was speaking to, how it applies to us. And I'd like to continue that look today by looking at the prophet Amos. Uh, We're going to get back to our study of Mark next week and looking into some of the parables of Jesus. But I I hope that you've enjoyed this last week's look of the Minor Prophets and and this week's look as well. Uh, And I would like to continue this view because this is a group of people that we tend to not really know a whole lot about. Minor Prophets, even the, the, the Major Prophets, these are those crazy guys that we just... That's a weird message, and I don't understand it, and I don't want to read it because it's just it, it, it's strange to me. And we need to see these guys are strange. These are strange men, and they do strange things for God, the things that God has commanded them to do. And we need to understand that that is intended to bring a message out to the recipients of those letters, and it's a message that we can understand today, and it's a message that can still teach us today as well. So we'll get into the book of Amos. I want to begin with the title though, because when I read the book of Amos, I think of the words of a, a famous character in, cinema, in a comic book lore, and that is Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben is the uncle of Peter Parker who becomes Spider-Man, and he has this phrase, this catchphrase that almost every Spider-Man movie loved to bring up over and over again. We've heard him say it a million times, with great power comes great responsibility. All the kids here are going, I know that, that, that phrase. Amos is bringing a similar message to the, the, tri, the, the children of Israel, the northern king of Israel. They had great power. They had great blessings. And with that came a great responsibility. But with great responsibility also comes great consequences. The book of Amos is going to highlight that immensely and is going to draw upon the relationship that they had with God and what that truly does mean for them and how they had been wrong in the way that they thought about that. So just a little bit of background information before we begin. Amos is a, is a prophet that comes from the very um, unknown land of Tekoa. We have Tekoa mentioned in the Bible a total of maybe about three times. You have um, a, a woman that comes from Tekoa. You have a group of people in the days of Nehemiah that come from Tekoa and work on the law. But of all the people from Tekoa, Amos is about the most famous, and we really don't even know a whole lot about him other than the fact that he is a shepherd and he is a farmer. He farmed, some of your translations may say sycamore fruit. Some translations may say fig farmers. And the reason that these, in, that these are important to understand who Amos is is because this isn't describing someone who is incredibly wealthy. I don't know a whole lot about what kind of figs a sycamore tree puts off, but from what I've, um, what I've been able to understand, I don't think anyone was ever going to strike it rich growing figs as a living. This isn't some sort of fruit that, that, that you know, everybody was knocking down his, his garden walls to try to get their hands on. And so the picture that we oftentimes find developed with Amos is this is a poor farm boy. This is a guy that made his life off the land, off the animals. He knew all about farming, but he isn't probably a very wealthy and rich person. And God calls him to leave the the kingdom of Judah, where uh, Tekoa is found, and to head north to the bustling cities of Bethel 
in Israel. And it couldn't be farther out of his element for him because Bethel is anything but a poor farming community. Bethel and Israel have become a booming powerhouse of might and economic finance. He, he comes and he speaks during the, the reign of Isaiah, who's king of Judah. That's the, the kingdom that he leaves. And goes into the kingdom of Israel to speak to those people that lived under the reign of Jeroboam II. Um, and, and this nation uh, of Israel is marked by some pretty terrible things. They're marked by arrogance and pride. They're marked by a sense of national security. We have Look what we have made ourselves out to be. We're the Israelites. We're the northern kingdom of Israel. Who can stand against us? In fact, Jeroboam has been on a campaign. We'll call it the Make Israel Great Again campaign. And he's been extremely successful. They have grown and expanded the borders even farther than where they had been. They have military might. Their armies are magnificent. They are rich. When people think of Israel, they think of economic success. And they go, this is a nation that's doing well. And yet, what was the cost? Amos is here to tell them the cost is the moral decay. On the outside, you are gleaming and look so successful, but on the inside, you're a burning trash heap of a people. And you need to understand why. And that's one of the things that makes this book so interesting. Is more than just about any book of the Bible, Amos comes and he says, God is fed up. He is fed up with the things that you are doing. Usually you read through a prophet and it's kind of like, God is angry, but God will relent. If you do this, God will spare you, but don't forget, God is angry, but He is also a loving God and He wants you to change. Not Amos. Amos spends almost the entire book telling them how sick God is of their lifestyle. Very few things are said about repentance and very little hope is given. In fact, it's reserved out of nine chapters it's reserved to the final five verses that says there will be some hope that comes from all of this. And so Amos's approach then becomes very similar to the approach that Jesus had uh, of going to those who should know better, going to those that should have a better understanding of what's going on and making them afflicted, making them see the error of their way, drawing it out and putting it in front of them while at the same time offering comfort to those who are oppressed those who are mistreated. And that's what this, this book points out in Israel. They are um, being held accountable for the way that they have treated others. It repeatedly points out that they've failed to embrace God's ideas of justice. They have been busy selling off people, uh, selling off the poor for, for common household goods. Uh, if, if you are poor, if you are needy in Israel, and you owe somebody a pair of sandals in the days of Amos... You're going into slavery. I can't pay back those sandals. I don't have the money to buy you a piece of leather for your foot. Okay, well, I'll just sell you for somebody that's needing slave work so I can get my money back because I don't care about you. I care about my money. This is the attitude. They are oppressing the poor. The men are busy using the women in immoral ways. They're drunk on their own success and they're blinded that the lifestyle that they're living is evidence that they have completely forgotten God. And so Amos is going to begin here in chapters 1 and chapters 2 by telling them a series of poems. 
That's how Amos is going to approach this. These are Hebrew literature poems that are describing destruction. Actually, they're describing sin and the, the consequences of that sin. So he's come all the way to Israel, and his first thing that he wants to bring up is Damascus. Damascus is kind of the heart of Syria. And he's going to go into in, in chapter 1, verse 3, start talking about Damascus, and he's going to make a statement that he's going to say over and over again. For three transgressions of Damascus... And for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now again, we have to remember this is Hebrew literature. And so this means something to the people that he's speaking to. Three transgressions and for four. Numbers, if you remember several, several months back, a year back, we studied uh, the book of Revelation. And we re realized that numbers have a lot of meaning in Hebrew literature. Um, the number three is a very special number. Whenever we think of numbers like number seven, we think, oh, there's a lucky number. Number 13, that's a very unlucky number. We don't want to have to stop. In fact, most hotels don't have a level 13. So we understand that this idea of numbers being held to a, a certain meaning in our own culture. Well, that was true in their culture as well. And the, the number three was a very holy number. And when I say holy, I, I do mean holy as in set apart like God, but holy as in complete as well. When we think of three, maybe we think of the Godhead, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is similar to the way that they thought of the number three. Maybe like the, the Old Testament is divided into the law and the prophets and the histories. Three is a complete number. It doesn't get more complete than three. It's perfectly complete. It's perfectly full. And he's saying for three sins, for the perfect divine amount of sin, and for one more. Now, how does that possibly work? Having the opportunity to study this with some friends the other day, one of them brought up, it'd be kind of like saying if you went to a ball game and somebody said, for three strikes and a fourth, you're out of here. And you go, well, how on earth did you get a fourth strike? How are you so bad that you managed to get four strikes in a baseball game when three strikes and you're out? That's the picture that Amos is painting here. You all are so terrible that when God should have judged you for the amount of sin that you, that you have committed that should have brought this judgment upon you, and you went even beyond that, God is finally doing something about it. And He says, Damascus, it's because of your violence. It's because of the, the, the treatment that you have given to these nations that you've went in and fought against. You are going to be judged by God with captivity. He goes on to talk about Gaza. This is that land of the Philistines. And he says it's for your slavery. For the way that you mistreated mankind uh, and, and, and bringing them in as if they are possessions that you can own, you are going to be destroyed. Tyre. He mentions not only slavery, but also brotherhood covenant. Tyre had entered into these relationships with the, with the Edomites. And they had completely backstabbed that, completely betrayed that. Yes, I know we're supposed to have this relationship, but we used that trust that you had in us to take you captive, to make you our slaves. And he says, because of that, there's going to be destruction come upon you. He goes again and says to the Edomites, because of your cruelty and your hatred, I'm going to bring this against you. They, he says that their anger tore perpetually in verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. He says, you pursued, you pursued your brother with the sword and cast off all pity and anger tore perpetually. This was just an a indwelling of, of hate towards their fellow mankind. 
So much so that it led them to do terrible things. And many of these guys, the things they're describing are very terrible. Ammon, in the very next section, verse 13, is about the most vivid of them all. He says, For three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. He's saying the murder that you... It's not enough that you went into Gilead to take this land. And I think we need to note, a lot of the things that he's talking about are, have a lot to do with war. And he's led people to say, well, God hates war. Well, that's not true. That's not, the, that's not the point. God was using a lot of these nations as judgment against another nation. The war that they were bringing to those land was war that God had said, because of your sin, I'm going to send another nation in here. But even though when these people are acting as God's tool for judgment, He's watching them. And He says, the way that you act and the way that you treat others, even when you're working for Me, I see it. And I don't like whenever you do not have any regard for human life whatsoever. Murdering these, these women, they're going into Gilead and they're not just fighting against the men of war, against the armies. They go in and they're, they're taking the women who are pregnant with child and they're cutting them open to see the children. And you think, that's barbaric. That is so savage. How could someone possibly do this? But yet these things still happen today. We shouldn't look at these things and, and, and think that's just something that happened long ago. There are stories that have come out of many war-torn situations, but especially World War II, of this exact same thing happening. Of people going into a land and making wagers over what the sex of the child would be when they came across pregnant women and then finding out for themselves who was going to win that bet. It's terrible, terrible things. When you read about Moab, Moab, they hated the Edomites so much that when they go in and they defeat the Edomites, it's not just enough that we're going to defeat them. We're going to find the king and where he is buried and we're going to dig his bones up so we can burn them because we hate them so much. And again, it's just illustrated that God is watching and God is not ignorant to the ways in which mankind just shows no regard for, for human life. Whenever I worked, uh, I, I, I was blessed with the opportunity to work in the Department of Defense for several years um, with contractors like L3 and, and Lockheed Martin. And I remember the day that Osama bin Laden was killed. I remember the day that the news came. Early in the morning we were there, news came down from our, some of our government liaisons. They've, they've got him. They've killed him. And I remember people who said, I can't wait for his body to get back here because we're going to string him up. Now, if you remember, he, that's not what happened. But, but we wanted to just, we, we want to parade this corpse through the street. Did, did Osama bin Laden deserve to die? He did things that our government said, if you cross this line, if you come with this force, we will respond with this force. And God has told us, government, obey the governments. Romans 13, obey the government because I've put them there. I've put them there and there's an action that's going to happen to your, to your actions. And if you're bringing this sort of violence in, you're going to have this sort of violence back. It's not a question over whether or not he deserved it. It's not a question over whether or not the Edomites deserved to have Moab come in. It's a question over the heart of the people that were even when working as God's people, as God's instrument of judgment, that said, I hate these people so much that I don't care what we do to them. 
I'm ready to kill. I'm ready to murder. I'm ready to take freedoms. I'm ready to do anything as long as it benefits me because I just despise them. That's still the world that we live in. That hasn't changed. There's still evidences of that in our lives. He brings up Judah and says they've abandoned the law of God. That's still the world that we live in. And because of all of these, he's saying destruction is coming. Captivities are coming against these nations. He says, I won't stand for this. This will not continue to last. And we read all that and we go, man, they lived in a wicked, wicked world. But Amos is not here to talk about Damascus and Gaza and all of these other countries. He's come to Israel. Why has he spent a chapter and a half talking about all these other nations? Well, when we pull up a map, maybe it begins to help us to see what's going on. Because when we pull up a map and we start looking at where these cities are, you found Tyre and Damascus in the north, Gaza and Ammon to the west and the east, Moab to the south. And a little further south, we find Judah and Edom. But when we start to pull this up and we look at this kind of in a grand scale on a map, I hope what you see is that Amos is drawing a target. And right smack dab in the middle of his target is God's bullseye. God has sent him to Israel. And very poetically, he has called their attention to say, look at all the nations around you and all the wickedness that's surrounding you. But what's in the heart of all of it? You guys. And that's going to be this message going forward. We need to remember that. That where all of this wickedness is radiating out from is Israel. And should that have been? Israel, for sin upon sin upon sin, layering it upon themselves, they have repeatedly shown a disrespect for God through the way that they have treated others. And he says, because of that, destruction and captivity is coming upon you. And so then he ends this section of poems and gets into a sermon, a series of sermons designed to to open the hearts and open the minds of the people. But at no point does he ever change the, to- the, the message of that last poem that he spoke. Destruction and captivity is coming. God has gotten to a point where he's saying you can't change what's coming now. But you can change who you are as you go through it. So in chapter 3, he begins with the key verses of the entire book. He says in verse 1 and 2, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is the central point of Amos' whole message. The Israelites had this mentality that we are God's chosen people. We're saved. We don't have anything to worry about. We have been set up as this great kingdom, and look at us. We are a great kingdom. And he's saying it's because of your relationship with me that you think you will not receive punishment. I'm here to tell you because of your relationship, judgment is coming all the more. He's telling them you should have been an example. When we think back to that, that, that diagram or that map, Righteousness should have been flowing out of Israel. And all of these other nations should have been touched by that righteousness. Righteousness. He's saying because you weren't the example, 
I'm going to make you the example. In chapter 3, look at verse 9. He says, Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. That's in Israel. Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See the great tumult in her midst and the oppressed within her, for they do not do, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. He's saying, You all, because of who you are, you are the only family on the face of the earth that I have made this covenant with, the only family that I know. And because of that, you should have been the example that radiates out to the world and says, I am glory. I am to be honored. I am the Lord God, Jehovah. But because you have failed to do that, because you failed to set the example, I will make you the example. And through your lives, I will be glorified. I will be honored. And all people will know that I am the Lord God. Now, having the option to be the example versus having that option stripped away and being made the example are two very different things. One of those comes with the opportunity to share in the glory of God. The other one comes with the opportunity to be made pure through judgment. And we think back of how that was done throughout the Old Testament, and the picture that comes up repeatedly is fire. Fire and precious metals. And how are precious metals made pure? They are melted and burned in a fervent fire, and so all the impurities are burned out of them. That's a very painful sounding experience. And that's what God is bringing to them now. You're going to be made pure, but it's not going to be pleasant. And so in, verse, in chapter 4, he brings up that you all have experienced trials in the past, but you have not truly felt my judgment. You think it's been bad before, but you don't know what's coming your way. And he begins that message with a very eye-opening and, and offensive message that he brings that, that in, in that day it should have been offensive. In our day it seems like it's even more offensive. He starts in verse 1 of chapter 4 speaking to the women of the land. And to get their attention, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Cows of Bashan? How can you call me a cow? That's a terrible thing to call someone. He is trying to get their attention. And what we need to do is we need to think about the characteristics of cows. You call somebody a cow today and they're probably thinking, hey, you think that I've, that I've got a heavy figure. You think that, I, that I, I eat too much. We shouldn't think of the physical characteristics of cattle. We should think of the, the way that they act, the way that they think. If you have ever watched cattle in a field, one thing becomes pretty obvious, and that is they are not the most intelligent creatures on the earth. They think about about three things. Where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to eat? And if there's a coyote in the field, where am I going to go to get safe from that thing? But that's about it. They're not thinking about, what am I going to do about the pig over here that wants something to eat? Or the goat that's over here and it wants something to eat? How am I going to help those things out? No, it's not about them. It's about me. And when I see food, I'm going after it. And so listen to what he says. You cows of Bashan, you crush the needy, you oppress the poor, and you say to your husbands while you're doing all these things, you've got this picture of a cow just stepping on everything in its path, going to its food, going, bring me my wine. I want to drink. It's about me. It's about what I want, about what I feel like I need, and not about the people that get squashed in my way. And he goes on in verse 2 and says, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. 
You know, when I think of being taken captive, that's what he's telling them. Captivity is coming. I think of being taken captive. I oftentimes think of, of uh, pictures like, like you see in the movies of someone with their hands tied together, maybe chained together, and they're walking, and they're, and they're, they're, they're all being led away into captivity. And, and you know, you can get away from that. You can run. If somebody's not paying attention, somebody's not looking, you can run away, and you, somebody can help you break that, that chain that's upon you. He says, you're not being led away with chains. You're being led away with fish hooks. Now, this was something that, was, that happened in that day. They would take mighty hooks and run them through the flesh of your back. And as painful as that sounds, think about trying to move. How are you going to run with that in your back? But even if, he, even if he's not prophesying a physical way, what he's showing them is, have you ever caught a fish? And that fish, you got it up in the air, and if you're like my boy, uh, some of my boys, they're like, I ain't touching that thing. Um, and it's flopping, and it's wiggling, it's doing everything, and it can't get off that hook because the hook is set. He said, you all, you all might think you're going to get away from this. You might think that somehow because you've got might, you've got power, you've, you've been thinking about yourself, and you've protected yourself for this day, you're not getting away because my hook is set. I am coming after you in judgment. But then notice right after he says that where he turns. He says, but let's think about the kind of people you are. You're people that are crushing the poor, but also you're people that are very religious. Verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. These are places where temples are set up. Gilgal and Bethel. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel. They loved to worship God. That needs to be very clear. That is a big part of this message. These people loved worshiping God. They loved to go to the temple and say, look, we're giving offerings. We're doing all these things over and over again, daily. This is a, describes our lives. And God is making a very clear connection here. A connection that He's going to make even more in chapter 5. After He calls for them to repent, He's making a message that says, I see your worship. And I see the truth in your worship. When you think about the terrible things that were going on in their lives, they had become blind to God trying to get their attention. In verses 6 through 13, God is saying, Look around you. Don't you see natural disasters? Your crops are covered with blight. Don't you see the, the health problems that you have? Your teeth are having all of these issues. You have people coming against you just like they did against Sodom and Gomorrah. There's plagues that have been sent on the land. All of these things are having to get your attention and all you think about is what can I do to get more for myself but I still want to be seen as a religious person that's over here worshiping God. And so because of all that, because of who they were, he tells them in chapter 5, stop. Turn away from that. Repent. He wants them to hear this message of judgment and, 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 and to, to think about what kind of people are we. We need to stop being this. And again, he never says. The closest he says to them uh, escaping this is in verse 14 of chapter 5. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He never comes about and says, if you guys will repent, I'll, I won't do this. Because remember, the fish hook's set. Judgment is coming. But it's better to go through judgment with a repentative, sorrowful, broken heart than as a prideful, arrogant enemy of God. And so he says, turn back to me. And then at the end of chapter 5, he tells them exactly what I think about your worship. Starting in verse 21, he says, I hate. I hate 
I despise your feast days. You ever think about that? God, God of love. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, He is depicted as a God of great love and mercy, but He hates. Here He says, I hate your worship. I hate your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Let it, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. He says, you think what I want is you worshiping me when you're filled with wickedness? When you hate the people around you? When you mistreat the, the poor and the oppressed? He says, no, instead of all the worship in the world, what I'd rather do is see your lives permeated with justice and righteousness. And we have a phrase for that today. You hear people in the world say this all the time. I don't want to be religious. I want to be Christian. I don't want to be religious. This is what they mean when they say that. I don't, want to, I don't go before a, a collective group and, and sing songs and, and study God's Word. I don't do that. I want to be Christian. I want to treat people with kindness. I want to treat people with mercy. I want to be just in my actions. And God is saying here is the worship that you're giving me means absolutely nothing to me. In fact, I hate it. It makes me sick. It's very similar to the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 when He said, because you are neither hot nor cold, I spew you out of my mouth. All why? All because of the way that you treat others the way that you treat the world around you. And so he tells them, turn away from that. But they're not going to turn away from that. They're going to continue in their actions. And so he says in chapter 6, woe to you. Here's what's going to happen. Terrible things are coming upon you because you have pride. And all of this is about to take place because you're so arrogant because you think I'm God's people. None of this can happen. And so he ends his sermon and begins to tell them, let me tell you what God showed me. I've received some visions. Because you all aren't listening. You're not getting it. So let me just tell you a few visions. And the visions are fascinating. These visions of Israel in chapter 7, verse 9. And, and what we need to see is that there is something that is calling our attention backwards in these visions. First, you have two visions. In, in uh, verse 1, he talks about locusts coming in and destroying the land. And then in verse 4, he talks about fire coming in and destroying the land. And those visions should draw our minds back to Egypt, where God used the same instruments in the plagues of Egypt to bring in great destruction and judgment and try to change the hearts of the people. But there's another thing that needs to draw our minds back, and that is you have a man standing between God and His people saying, don't do this. When you go back to Mount Sinai, these people have walked... They've experienced the plagues in Egypt. They have left Egypt and been brought out as a great nation with great riches and they're walking through the wilderness and there's a pillar of cloud in front of them and a pillar of fire in front of them and they've crossed the Red Sea and they've seen all the mighty power of God and they get to Mount Sinai and what do they find? They find a mountain enveloped with fire and smoke and lightning and they say, I can't go up there. If I go up there, I will die. That is scary. That is scary power right there. And so they send Moses up there. And they start thinking about it. And they start thinking, this God is a powerful God, but if that's Him, that's scary, I need another way to be able to approach Him. And so what do they do? They build a calf. Aaron comes up with this great idea. Give me all your gold. 
Give me all your gold. Because you're right. This is a great God that's brought us out of this. But that is pretty scary. So how about we make a God that we can approach because we made him. I don't think for a second that, that Aaron just said, hey, I'll just create a new God for you. I think that the, the golden calf is intended to stand between God and His people in their minds. And God sees all this, and He's in the process of giving them their commands, and He's just like, they've already. Already, after everything I've done, they're already doing this. They're already turning away from me. They're already trying to separate ourselves in some way. I'm going to kill them. I'm just going to wipe them out. Moses, you'll be the new leader of a great nation. And Moses is standing between him saying, reconsider God. We see the same picture here. He says, I'm going to bring locusts and I'm going to destroy the land. And Amos says, God, Jacob is too small. Now you've got to remember, Jacob is this mighty nation of Israel. They have all the power. He says, they can't stand up to you, God. They cannot withstand your judgment. Please don't do this. And God says, okay, I won't do it. I'm going to bring fire. Notice that he kind of escalates it a little bit from locust to fire. He's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. they can't handle locusts, so I'm going to burn the whole city, the whole nation down. And again, he says, please, God, reconsider. Don't do this. Jacob is too small. And so what does he finally give him? He gives him what I'd call a plumb bob. He gives him a plumb line. If you ever worked with any carpenter that, I don't know, is over the age of 50, you know what a plumb bob is. I grew up using a, a whiskey level, a level with a little bit of alcohol in it and an air bubble. That's what we, when I grew up learning, this is, it tells me my, my table that I built is level. Or this, this wall that I've built, I put it on its side, it's straight up and down. But a plumb bob was a piece of string with a weight on the end. And so it didn't matter where you're standing. If you're standing up in the hills, if you're standing down in a valley, it doesn't matter where you're standing. You hold that thing up, it's going to tell you what's exactly straight up and down. I remember trying to learn how to use one of these with my dad recently as we built a, an entrance for mom's farm for, for the gate. And I'm standing back there with these big poles and I'm trying to hold that thing up and I couldn't use that thing to save my life. But I do recognize the, the, the importance of it. It sets up a standard. This is what's truly vertical. If your tree is leaning over like that or your post is leaning over like that, it ain't straight. Even if you want to say it's straight, it's not because this line is what's straight. And so he says, all right, I've given you a vision of me destroying them with locusts and you said that was too bad. Don't do it. Reconsider. So I said fire and you said, no, no, to reconsider. So how about I just give you a holy standard, a divine standard, our plumb line, and you go through the land and you see for yourself what kind of people this is. And notice Amos does not come back. He doesn't come back and say, reconsider God. He has nothing left to say because it is painfully obvious that this people are so rotten, are so wicked, that it's beyond time for God to do something. In fact, that's the very next vision, is you're ripe for the picking. You are summer fruit. You are fruit that should have been picked days ago, and now you're mush and rot. And it's just you're fit for nothing but to be pulled off the tree and thrown away. And I want you to see what happens in the meantime here. In the middle of these two, right there in the middle of chapter 7, you have the prophet or the priest, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. He's, he says, I've heard enough of this. You've come into Jeroboam's country and you're telling us we're all so wicked. Don't you remember where you came from? Look at Judah. Look at what they're doing. Effectively, Amaziah is probably the first person to use the great Christian argument whenever something is brought against you. Hey, spec. Speck and plank. You worry about your own self. That's what Amaziah is doing here. You worry about you. Go back and prophesy. Go back and eat the bread of Judah. We don't want to hear it in Israel anymore. 
And Amos' response is, do you think I wanted to do this? Do you think I got up this morning and was like, I'm ready to go be a pain in, in everyone's backside in Israel. I'm ready to go up here and make everybody mad at me. I'm ready to go up here and just turn the tables against me completely. In fact, he says, you know what? I didn't even, I didn't even come from a line of prophets. I didn't go to school to be a prophet. I'm a shepherd. I'm a farmer. My desire is to be with my crop and with my flock. That's where I want to be. I'm here because God sent me. And so you may not like it. You may not want to hear it. But you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. And so he gives them a final vision in chapter 9. It's the vision of God destroying the temple. And here, notice what he says. He says, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. So the picture begins with God standing, depending on your translation, beside or even upon the altar. He's standing where you come to receive forgiveness. Alright, that's where he's standing. And he's standing there not ready to receive their sacrifice of forgiveness. He's ready to kill them. That's how despised they are in his eyes. And here's how he's going to do it. He says, I'm going to strike the foundations of the temple and bring it down on your heads. Just like Samson did to the Philistines. This is, this is kind of like poetic justice in a sense. Your great arch enemy, the Philistines, that you all despise so much, I'm going to kill you the same way. I'm just going to bring the temple down upon your heads. But there's another picture that comes with this as well. Not only is, is this now God saying, I will accept no forgiveness, no sacrifice. I'm ready to gather you all up in one place and just end it all. He says there's also hope. There's also vision of a future restoration. And I want us to keep in mind what he said at the beginning of chapter 9. The Lord standing by the altar. Or if you have the King James Version, the Lord standing upon the altar. The altar is where sacrifice was made. It's where something was taken to be killed for the forgiveness of sins. And while God right now is standing by that altar ready to destroy anyone that would come, later He's going to physically place Himself upon that altar in the form of His Son for the sins of a rebellious hateful people. And that's what the last part of this book is all about. Starting in verse 11, he says, On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. I find it interesting. That's where the picture that he paints. He's in Israel. We're not the lineage of David. David's lineage is down in Judah. And he says, guys, it's coming. The end is coming. But I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David. Not the temple of Solomon. Not the temple in Shechem or the temple in Bethel. The tabernacle of David. Because that describes a time when the people weren't situated with their own great wealth and palaces and, and everything just seemingly going the way they wanted. It described a time when the people were trusting God, following Him in the wilderness, and there was no set place of worship. Think about John chapter 4 when you get to the woman, uh, to, to the Samaritan woman, and he's asking her, or talking to her, and she asks him the question, where's the right place to worship? Up here on the mountain or down there in the temple in Jerusalem? We, we, everybody's arguing over that. And he says there's coming a day when it's not going to matter, the location. Why? Because God's raising up the tabernacle. The moving presence of God in the midst of His people. And He's going to repair the damages. He's going to raise it up from its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And then get this, 
all the Gentiles who are called by my name, they're going to be a part of it. He is pointing towards a future kingdom that is going to come through this judgment, come out of all of this judgment, out of all this destruction, is going to rise up and it's going to be described as a people that humbly follow God at any given place in the whole entire world because there's not one set place of worship. They humbly follow and trust and rely on God and it's going to be filled not with just the tribe of Judah. It's going to be filled with the Gentiles as well. All nations are going to make this up. And very clearly, we see that he's talking about the coming of Christ and the establishment of his church. And that's the big picture. That's the big picture of Amos. He comes at a time of great national pride, political success, and brings a message of judgment, saying, while your outer lives show success, your inner lives show moral decay. Instead of seeking opportunities to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, you've embraced arrogance, idolatry, self-righteousness, materialism. And Amos says, effectively, God hates hypocritical lives. So what do I do with that message today? If that's what he was describing to them. I don't think it's hard for us to look around and see that injustice permeates our society. And as Christians... We often turn a blind eye to it because we're not the ones causing it. That's our, that's our go-to uh, answers. Well, I didn't cause someone to have this problem. I didn't cause this person to be in that situation. And unfortunately, we oftentimes raise up more important works like praying, preaching, teaching, singing. You say these things are what it means to be a Christian. What Amos is effectively doing is reminding us that these works, while unquestionably central to a believer's life, we can't separate those from us in any form or fashion. They are hollow if we don't also apply them with love and service to others in our lives. The prophet Amos is simplifying the choice that says, do I, do I serve God? Uh, do, I, do I serve Him in study? Do I serve Him in prayer? Do I serve Him in song? Or do I go and help people that are in need? He's saying the answer is yes. You do. You cannot separate those two things. They are intertwined with one another. And we need to understand as Christians, as God's called out people, that yes, we are saved, but that does not put us above judgment. We are called to be in a relationship with Him And we are called to be in relationships with others that characterize His righteousness and His justice in our lives. So this morning, can we help? Can we help you with beginning that relationship that starts by coming to Him into that rebuilt kingdom of Israel that is His church? Are you ready to start walking sincerely with Him? Not just showing up to say, I I, I did my check mark. I sang my songs. I I took the Lord's Supper. I gave. I, I prayed but to walk sincerely with Him with justice and righteousness that goes flowing through your life like a river, like a stream, and it affects everyone that you come into contact with. That's the sort of lives that we want to help one another live. That's the sort of lives that we call you and invite you to live with us. If we can help you in any way, won't you please come forward as we stand and as we sing.